We have taken a, a break, a hiatus, from our journey um, through the history, biblical history of Israel, as we come into this, this time of Advent. And um, for me, this time of the year is really special. I really um, enjoy the, the opportunity to, to stop and think about, meditate on the mystery of the Incarnation. Um, there's so much that can be stated about Christ coming to the earth. And we're going to share some of them over the next five weeks. But over the years, you know, I, you, know you, you think about different facets that, of the, you want to look at. And you look at the testimony of Mary and the testimony of Joseph, the testimony of the angels, the testimony of Simon, the testimony of Anna. But as I was thinking and praying coming into this, I just felt really um, burdened about considering the impact of the Incarnation. So what? So what? God came to earth. So what? What does that mean to us? What's the, what's the importance to it? And so when we enjoy the festivities, we, we, we love decorating, we love singing the carols, it's all kind of fun. And if we were up north, we would be enjoying snow at this time as well. And it's, you know, at least for us, we still pray for a white Christmas. So, you know, if it, if, if it snows at Christmas, we're at least rejoicing on, on, on our side. It can go away the next day. That's okay. But as long as it's snow on Sunday, it's, or, or for this year, Sunday, Christmas Sunday, that'd be great. And, um, but the impact of the incarnation cannot be overstated. For it is truly the, 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 the foundation of the gospel message as the resurrection is the core of the gospel message, so the incarnation is the foundation of it. You cannot have the resurrection if you don't have the incarnation. And if you see in 1 Timothy chapter 3, I love the passage. We're going to go through a lot of passages today, so just hang on to your seats. Okay? There's a whole lot, even more than what's on your sermon note sheets. Okay? It says, without controversy, without controversy, Great is what? Great is the mystery of what? Of godliness. Now, this is kind of fun because it's not godhood, not, not the, 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 the um, I hate when my brain walks away. Um, Colossians chapter 1, he's the fullness of the godhead. Godhead. So it's not talking about the godhead, the mystery of the godhead here. It's the mystery of godliness. And so what's godliness? For us, becoming like God, like Christ, like God, okay? And so literally, the word means as an offering unto God, something that is, is made in, in a way that it is offerable to a king, okay? In other words, you wouldn't offer the king something that's really yucky. You'd offer the king what? The best. I mean... It doesn't matter which president it is. Even if it's the worst president, you go through all the presidents of the past, you pick the president you don't like the most. If he came to your house to eat, you'd still offer him what? A great meal. I mean, I promise you, you wouldn't pick out your worst and give it to him, even though you may say that's what you'd want to give him. You really wouldn't. You'd give him the best because he's the president. And so when we talk about God now, who's the king of kings and the Lord of lords, what should we offer him? The very best, right? So this is the concept of godliness, okay? That's the word. But look what it says. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And then it's going to define the mystery of us 
wanting to be godly. God was manifested in the flesh. What's that called? The incarnation. God was manifested in the flesh. I mean, how can people say that Jesus wasn't God? God was what? We're going to go. I, 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 I can't spend too much time here. Okay. Did you guys bring lunch? You can bring it in. It's a special day. We can eat here. Anyways, God is manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit. God was. God was. Justified in the spirit. Seen by angels. Preached among the Gentiles. Believed on in the world. What? Received up in the glory. What's received up in the glory? The resurrection. Do you see it? The bookends. The bookends of godliness. I know it could be the ascension. Okay. But that's still based upon the what? The resurrection. Okay? The bookends of the gospel, the bookends of this mystery of godliness is the incarnation of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And we're going to see as we come through this impact of the incarnation that it, this thing, Jesus coming to the earth, God becoming flesh, should have, for those who believe it, a significant impact. It ought to change your lives. Light, love, life ought to all be flowing through you. And that's what you're going to see as we go through the book or the epistle, first major epistle of John. He weaves, if you would, these three thought processes together, the, the impacts, the, 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 um, the light, the love, the light, life that ought to be with us. Um, but that's all going to be based upon the redemption of man, which we're going to see next week. But then also the revelation of God that we're going to see, t- that we're going to look at today. 1 John chapter 1, the beginning part, that which was from the beginning. That's the what? It's the incarnation. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon in our hands of handled concerning the Word of life, the life was what? Manifested. We have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was what? With the Father and was what? Manifested to us. That's the, the incarnation. John's saying everything I'm about to tell you is based upon the actuality, factuality of the incarnation. Because of all those things, we're going to declare to you that you, and we're going to write it to you, that your, and we'll talk about those in a moment, that that is the, the causal part of it. The incarnation happened. And because it did, all these things are going to come about. Today, we're going to look at the impact of the incarnation on the revelation of God. The revelation of God. See if I can do this right. So as we light the first candle, it's a reminder to us of the impact as we're going to see, of the incarnation upon the revelation of God. Now, I'm going to throw out two larger terms, okay? And I put the definitions up there. But I'm going to start off with this statement. This is my, my underlying statement, my thought process, okay? I'm, you're used to me teaching um, verse by verse more than thematically or topically. Make sense? So you've got to understand, now, my... my What's my core thought process when we come to this part of the theme? The validity of our testimony is based upon and contingent upon the veracity 
of the testimony of God. The validity of the testimony of God's church, us, is contingent upon the veracity of the testimony of God's word. Does that make sense? Okay. If God's word is not true, if it is not accurate, if it is not sure, then your testimony is bogus. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, do you remember how this, this epistle started off? John starts it off with what? A what? A testimony. Okay? He starts it off with a testimony. Now listen, if his testimony is not true, then everything else he says in this epistle is what? It's contrary. It's false. We talked about that in Sunday school, remember? With, with Isaiah. Okay? If he gave the testimony about Arabia, the, the burden against Arabia, and said it was going to happen within a year, the year of a hired man, and if it didn't happen within the year of a hired man, what about the rest of his prophecies? They were false. And what did he prophesy about directly after he prophesied about the, the burden against Arabia, which was going to occur within a year? The siege of Jerusalem, which would occur hundreds of years later when Babylon came against it. But because what happened, the burden against Arabia happened, just like he said, then the Jews could be assured that the, the prophecy against them was going to happen just as well. But you know what they did? They ate, drank, and they were merry, because tomorrow they were going to die. Instead of putting on sackcloth and repentance, they put on frivolity. They didn't turn back to God. And so the same thing goes for the testimony of John. And so we see, first of all, the veracity of the testimony of God's word in the declaration of the scriptures. Now, John accepts, accepts something right off the bat here as factual. This is the only book that starts off with, with a pronoun that has no antecedent. Now, I know, for some of you said, what did that mean? That means, you know what a pronoun is, right? That's a he, she, or it type thing, okay? It's not a person's name. But whenever you say a he, she, or it, or him, or her, or she, or whatever, you've got to have something that points back to. So you know him, who him is, who he is, who that is. But there is none here. It starts right off with it. But we're given some clues as we come along who the that is. The one who is that is the one who was what? In the beginning. Who was with the Father and who was what? Manifested. And not only was he just manifested, it wasn't just a, a vision in the clouds. It wasn't just a, a sprig of a spirit. It was something that they could what? Hear, see, and touch. It was something that was physical. It was something that was physically there in their midst that they interacted with relationally, physically. This is huge. Well, it's huge because this is exactly what God's word declared would happen. First of all, we have the virgin birth, right? Isaiah 7:14. It says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. I heard of a pastor in this town of a big Baptist church, which you would think would believe this, who said the virgin birth is meaningless. It doesn't matter. It's po it, it doesn't matter. Wow. Now, if you were in here for when we went through Isaiah, you heard I went through the progression of why it's a big deal. Okay? I can't go through all that right now. But your, your, your redemption is, is, is critical to, to Christ being born of a virgin. It is a big deal. Okay? Major deal. Well, why? 
Forget the moment for the redemption. We'll talk about that next week, okay? But why is it a big deal here? Well, because the New Testament declares it to be true. If Isaiah is wrong in his prophecy, then not only is Isaiah wrong, you take it out, but so are the Gospels. Because the Gospels tell us, in Luke chapter 1, we read that the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? I'm a what? Virgin. Okay, didn't use the word, but it gave us a definition, right? And the angel answered her and said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Don't worry about a Mary. I'm going to work it in Joseph's heart so he marries you. And, and you'll be able to have time with a guy, and, and you'll be able to have a son. He doesn't say that. He doesn't mean, Mary says, well, how does this speak? Because I don't know a guy. Don't worry about it. Joseph's getting ready to propose. we got this one handled. That wasn't, the, that wasn't the solution. The solution is, you're right. You're right. This isn't possible with men. But guess what's going to happen? Something special. The Holy Spirit's going to overshadow you. Something's going to happen that's never happened before. You get to be the lucky maid who gets to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah. We read it in Matthew's account. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follow. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together... She was found with a child. So now we have it a little further along, just in case you were wondering from Luke's account whether it was that other way, that maybe that they came together and stuff like that. The account from Matthew now comes a little bit further along and says, nope, nope, it didn't happen that way. It says, before they came together, she was found with a child of the Holy Spirit. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Drop down to verse 22. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Isaiah, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with a child, and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. Then Joseph did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, verse 25, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. If she wasn't a virgin, you believe a lie. Get it? Is it a big deal? It's a big deal. The veracity of the Word of God depends upon this truth. I can't stand when theologians or those who call themselves theologians discount the literalness of the Word of God because they're afraid of the attacks of man. God's Word doesn't change. The hearts of man do. And that's what I pray for. I pray for the hearts of man to change, to change the way they think, and they re receive and accept the what? Truth. Because God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. The truth. Not a lie. Not a wishy-washy, well, it doesn't really matter. It does matter. God's word is truth. Well, not only then is it about the virgin birth, but it's a virgin birth because that one to be born is who? Is God in the flesh. Now, this is huge, okay? I mean, virgin birth is huge too, okay? Because it just, the, the virgin birth makes sure that it's God who is the Father, makes sense? And it's not an earthly man. But the deity 
The deity of Christ, the incarnation of God, is, is paramount. Again, it, you have to have a perfect sacrifice. We'll talk about that next week. Sorry. This is, but you see how all this just flows together. It's just so intertwined. Oh, go backwards. Isaiah 9, verse 6. Somebody want to quote me that verse? For unto you a child is born, unto you a son is given, and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Okay? So, the first name is uh, Peleuites, the Wonderful Counselor. I don't have time to go into all this. Okay? I've done this in other messages, and you can ask me, and I can give you the data on this. Okay? But the only one who is a Wonderful Counselor, the only one who does, has counsel that is wonderful, is Yahweh. In, in God's Word, it's very clear. Okay? He alone is the wonderful counselor. It's Yahweh himself. The mighty God, the El Gibor, okay? The only mighty God that there is, is, is Yahweh. He is the mighty God. He is the only mighty God. All others are false gods. God himself, we're going to see this in a moment, God himself declares that he alone is God. There is none other. He is the, the Aviad. He is the eternal father or the father of eternity. You can put it either way you want. It comes up with the same thing. If you're the father of eternity, that means you're the one who created eternity. Who could that be? It has to be God. It has to be Yahweh, because Yahweh has declared that he was, and before him there was no other gods. So the one who is going to be born has to be this individual. He has to be Yahweh. And finally, we hit Sar Shalom. He is the prince of peace. He is the one who is the, the author, the, the ruler of peace. If you want peace, he is the one that you need to plead to, to entreat, to bring perfect peace. We go on. Isaiah 48, verse 12 to 16. Turn here with me. Isaiah 48, verse 12 to 16. You're going to love this. And if you don't, pretend like you do. Okay? Because I love this. So rejoice with those who rejoice. Okay? Isaiah 48, beginning verse 12. This is for context. Okay? Listen to me. And this is all good stuff. Like when you're talking to Jehovah Witnesses and you're talking to Mormons at your door. Okay? This is truth. Listen to me, O Jacob. In Israel, my called... I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. Who's talking? God is. How do you know? Because he's the first and the last, right? Is this, it, you sure this isn't Isaiah? No, it's not Isaiah, okay? This goes on, it says, Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth. This is a greater confirmation. This must be God, right? My hand has laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand has stretched out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand up together. Is this Isaiah? This isn't Isaiah. This is God. All of you assemble yourselves and hear. Who among them has declared these things? Yahweh loves him. He shall do his pleasure on Babylon, and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken. Yes, I have called him. I have brought him, and his way will prosper. Come near to me. Hear this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. Who's speaking? God. Listen to what he says. From the time that it was... I was there, and now Yahweh Elohim in his Ruach, the Lord God in his spirit, have what? Have sent me. Who was talking? You sure that wasn't Isaiah talking? You know, a lot of your newer translations wanted to make that Isaiah. But you can see in context, it's not Isaiah. Yahweh's speaking. Yahweh says, I'm the first, I'm the last. I'm the one who created everything. I'm the one who stretched out the heavens. He makes painstakingly make sure that you know who's talking. And now he says, Yahweh declares, and now Yahweh Elohim and Yahweh Ruach have sent me. Have sent me. 
This is all in the portion. You can go from Isaiah 40 to 48 and read all this. We don't have time for all this. Again, it's another message. I got all this information. I'd love to share it with you, okay? You go through it, and you see all these things about Yahweh, him being the servant, the servant, and it comes on through. And all these parallels that are written that Yahweh declares through Isaiah that are fulfilled in Christ, that are declared about Jesus. Jesus is Yahweh, okay? Zechariah 2, verse 7 11. You can look this one up later. But again, in this passage, again, Yahweh declares that Yahweh Sabaoth has sent him. So Yahweh, God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, declares that he's going to be what? Sent. Well, we know as well from Zechariah, and they will look upon me whom they have pierced. Who was saying, who said that? Yahweh. Yahweh declares it. They'll look upon me whom they have pierced. Well, the, the testimony of the prophets is very clear that Yahweh was going to become incarnate. He was going to come to the earth. Well, what's the testimony of the apostles? John 1, 1 to 14. Again, you could look at this as we go, but in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Okay, in the Greek, it's even more profound, more pronounced than that. It says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and God was the Word. It's literally what it says in the Greek. And God was the Word. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Tabernacle. The Word literally would be the Word that's used for tabernacle. And he tabernacled among us and we beheld his glory. It's kind of fun. You know that pillar of cloud um, by day and the pillar of fire by night? We refer to it as the Shekinah Chabod, the Shekinah glory. Shekinah is the word for tabernacling. Chabod is the word for glory. And the word became, became, get, get the word, he became flesh and he what? tabernacled among us, and we beheld his chabod, his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the, the Father. Okay, He came unto his own, his own received him not. He was in the world, the world was made to him, but the world re- received him not. I mean, so much testimony in there in John chapter 1. Acts chapter 20, verse 27 to 28, this is the context where Paul is calling to the elders of Miletus, and he says, come to me, and he says to them, this is where we actually began our seven-year study of, of the Word of God. It says, I shun not to declare to you the whole counsel of God, right? But then in that context, he turns around and says to them, he says, now I want you, I'm encouraging you to shepherd the church of God, which he has given you oversight of, which he, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. He doesn't say anything about Jesus there. He talks about God. He's talking about the church of God. And he says, which God purchased with his own blood. Paul just took it for what? It granted. I mean, there needed no definition. God died. God purchased the church with his own blood. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, we already saw that, about how the God was what? Manifested in the flesh. There are so many other verses on your sermon note sheet to look at. You can go there. How many times that very, the word of God very clearly says it? Titus chapter 2 is very clear. I, I, I wanted to go there, but Titus 2 quotes um, from Isaiah 9, it says that you know, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I mean, the divinity of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, is, is just so apparent. The testimony then of the Lord himself. Turn with me to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Beginning at verse 23. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and such. Um, talking. <laughs> Arguing, debating, whatever. 
And, and Jesus says to them, he says, you are from beneath. That's a great line, isn't it? You know, people look at me sometimes when I, when I tell, uh, that I tell the Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons that they're, they're of the devil. You shouldn't say that. Jesus did it. Um, he said, you are from beneath. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you, now get what it says. Some of you have heard me say this before. It says, therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am but the he is in italics, which means that it's not there in the Greek. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. It's not there in the original. Unless you believe I am, you will die in your sins. What it literally says in the Greek is ego ami. Ego is the word I, ego. Think ego, okay? So think psychology. You have your ego, your ego. That's me, I. That's Greek, okay? Ami, I am. Unless you believe I am, I am. There is no word Yahweh in the Greek. So if you're going to bring over the concept of Yahweh, and Yahweh is the one who is. If you're going to bring that over into the Greek, you would bring it over as ego ami. And Jesus says, unless you believe I am, you will die in your sins. Do you think the incarnation of Christ is, is pretty important? You know, a lot of people say, what do you have to believe in order to be saved? I said, you know, I don't know whether someone may, may know at that very moment that Jesus is God, okay? But if they're really saved, when they come across that fact, what will happen? They'll accept it. Does that make sense? And so we're going to see in a moment, if they reject it, okay, if they reject the incarnation, then they're antichrist, okay? So we have verse 28, drop down to verse 28. Jesus said to them, when you, when the, you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am I am, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. When I am crucified, and then subsequently what? Resurrected, it will bear testimony to what? I am. I am. Who else can do that? No one. I mean, you, Elijah and Elisha may have raised the dead, but did they raise themselves from the dead? Not even Elijah and Elisha. Not even Moses. None of your prophets, none of your, your holy men, none of your, your great men have done this. But guess what? I will. And when that happens, you will know I am, I am. And so we come down to the very end where the translators can't miss this one at this point. We come down to verse 57, 56, for context. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Do you know what this says in the Greek? Ego me. It's the exact same thing. If they were consistent with their, with their translations, they would have said what? Before Abraham was, I am he. <laughs> but they don't put it here because they can't get, I mean, you can't, there's no way they get around it. They have to declare that he must be Yahweh. Well, the Jews understood it. Verse 59, then they took up what? Stones to throw at him. Why would they pick up stones to throw at him? Because he declared blasphemy. You get it? So the testimony of Jesus himself is that he is Lord. John 14, 6 to, 6 to 11. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me, right? So, so Philip says what? Show us the Father, and it will what? It'll satisfy us. And Jesus says what? Philip, have I been here so long with you, and you haven't recognized me? Philip says, show us the Father. Jesus says, I'm here. Look at me, Philip. I mean, I've been saying it in multiple different ways, 
But if you, get, if you understand that Yahweh is the Father and the Father is Yahweh and I am Yahweh, then who must I be? The Father. Great is the mystery. I cannot tell you that I fully comprehend the triunity of God. I don't get it. When the Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses want to say, so who was he praying to in the garden? I say, yeah, you're right. That's pretty mind-boggling, isn't it? But that's why the Bible says, and without controversy, great is the, the mystery. If it was not a mystery, he'd have defined it to us. But he hasn't defined how that happens. He left it a what? A mystery. Don't you hate that? Because as, as humans, we want to be God. And we want to define everything. And we want to explain God away. Because if we could explain everything about God, we'd be God. But we're not Mormons, so we're not. And nor will we be. God's word is true. God's word is real. It's living, it's vibrant. And it doesn't what? Change. It doesn't change. It's the same yesterday as it is today, and it will be forever. The incarnation. It's huge. I mean, the virgin birth and the incarnation of God, they are really underpinnings, if you would, of the foundation of the gospel. Does it make sense? If, if the gospel is true, and it is, Jesus had to be born of a virgin, and he had to be God. If any of that's not true, you're wasting your time here. You should be at home sleeping in and having a, a nice brunch. Well, what do we see? We see the denial of the Antichrists. We see the testimony of John. But what do we see then in, in, as we go on in 1 John? Turn to chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2. I know you thought we'd never get the, back to 1 John. 1 John chapter 2. So, so John is going on about this, um, the impact of the incarnation. But at the end of chapter 2, we read, beginning of verse 18, Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist, the Antichrist, is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For had they been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out from us that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar? But he who denies that Jesus is Messiah, the Christ. He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Let that therefore abide in you, which you heard from the beginning. If that which you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. Um, and this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. Drop down now to chapter 4, beginning verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming, and now already is in the world. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world. 
Therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Drop down to verse 12. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Do you get it? John's saying, look, the incarnation is true. All this that I'm going to talk to you about with the, the light, the love, the, the life, it's all, all things that happen as a result of the fact that Jesus came in the flesh. So what do you expect Satan to do? He who is behind the Antichrist. He's going to seek to go against that testimony. Well, the first thing we see is the meaning of the Antichrist. This is huge, okay? The meaning of Antichrist, a lot of times people say it's one who was against. It's not one who was against. It's one who comes in place of. The word anti in the Greek means in lieu of, instead of, in place of. And so I have, it's 22 times it's used in the in the New Testament, okay, and I, I've got them down here, most of them, not all of them, but you can see Matthew 2, 22, Archelaus ruled unto his father in place of his father, Matthew 5, 38, an eye in place of an eye, and a tooth in place of a tooth, get it? Okay, you come through all these things, and you'll get that the fact is that it means that it's coming in place of, in contrast um, to that. So not necessarily does it mean opposition in of itself. It becomes opposition because of the fact you are trying to usurp what is already there. Does that make sense? And so if I'm trying to you know, get Justin out of his position, I, I, I want to be the song leader. I don't want Justin to be the song leader. Okay? Then what am I doing? I'm trying to what? Replace him. I'm trying to be instead of him. And so if I'm doing that, really, what am I? I'm against him. I'm, I'm going to be opposed to him. I'm going to do whatever I can to, to make people say, oh, we don't want him. We want you instead. Does that make sense? Okay. That's what the anti that's what the Antichrist does. The Antichrist, okay, and those who are antichrists get you to come to choose them in lieu of choosing he who is the true Christ. Does that make sense? So as we look at the book of Revelation, we don't have time for all this right now. Okay? But you can go and you can look at this and you see what Satan does. Satan sets up replacements. Right now, look at the world, what's going on. Do you know, do you see what's happening? Satan is trying to set up a false millennium. The new world order. That's what's going on right now. We're trying to get a new world order, and we're going to try to set up a, a millennial reign before Christ comes back. Why? Because Satan's not dumb. He knows what the word says. Satan's only hope is to do what? Destroy the plan of God. And so he wants to get people not to believe God's word is true. So he's going to set up a counterfeit. And so he's going to seek to put out that the, what the truth is isn't really truth. Do you realize how big of a movement there is right now to say that the Holocaust never happened? It's huge. It's amazing to me. And there are smart people who believe that. I say smart. But we'd say they can't be very smart if they believe that. But they're smart people. They're professors who were purporting this thing that the Holocaust never happened. It's something that the Jews put out 
just to you know, make us feel sorry about it because the Jews are trying to what? Control the world. That's exactly right. It's amazing. But you know what? We watched the video um, on, on the Exodus just on Friday night. Friday night. Great video um, on, on, on the timing of the, um, of the Exodus. I say that because this guy agreed with me. Um, anyways, if he didn't agree with me, it wouldn't be great. Anyways, and so, but what he was putting out was that all these archaeologists and all these Egyptologists, they declare that there is no proof, none whatsoever, of the exodus of Israel. There's no proof that Israel ever even existed in Egypt. There's overwhelming evidence. It's just that they believe it had to happen during the days of Ramses. And it happened during the days of Amenhotep. They're looking in the wrong era. But because they're finding all this stuff, it couldn't be that because that happened there. Well, someone decided they're going to put it in a different era. Why? Because they don't want to receive what the truth really is. Do you get it? So as long as they can put out that, that Israel came out during the days of Ramses, and they get that from the Bible because they talk about the cities of Pithom and Ramses. And so therefore, they had to be during the days of No, that's not the case. I mean, that's not the case at all. You can't go to that verse and say, see, it's... But they're going to hold to that because they know the ones who don't believe. Okay, Romans chapter 1, they what? Suppress the truth, okay? And they believe a lie. And then they do what? They teach the lie, right? So they suppress the truth. They believe a lie. They teach the lie. And so they're doing that even with the, the evidence, overwhelming evidence that there is about Israel being there and during the days of Amenhotep. It's an amazing thing. Anyways, I won't steal the video for you. You, you have to watch it. So, but my point is, if all that's going on with everything that's in the Word of God and, that, and, and then that's in society, what's going on, does it surprise you that Satan is putting together such a, uh, a thing to destroy the evidence, quote-unquote, or the testimony of the incarnation of Christ? Especially because it's the foundation of the gospel. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, you can check me out on this, Paul says, he says, I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy because someone may come in and they... And they may preach to you another gospel, another spirit, or another Jesus, and you may very well accept them. And he goes on down, down to verse 13. He says, and these are false apostles, okay, who transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. And this is no wonder, I'm messing this up a little bit, but you can check me out on this. But Satan, and this is no marvel, for Satan himself also transforms himself into being an angel of light. Therefore, it's no marvel if his ministers also transform themselves into be ministers of righteousness whose end shall be according to their works. What's the point? That there will be those who look like they are theologians, who look like they are righteous, who look like they are preachers of the word, and they, ministers of righteousness, right? And they are going to be workers of the devil, and they're going to be putting out falseness. Hence, I am not the judge, but the fact that this preacher, who not in, not in Augusta now, who was here in the past, who was in a big church, who declared that he's a false teacher. At that moment, he's a false teacher. Now, I don't know about everything else, but that teaching is what? False. And for him to stand up to, to a church of thousands and to tell them they don't have to believe that, that's undermining the, the faith. Do you get it? This is huge. God's word is sure. His testimony is true. The veracity of God's testimony, again, is the underpinning of our testimony. What's the message of the Antichrist? They deny that Christ has come in the flesh. They deny the incarnation. You're going to see it. So anybody who denies that stuff, talking about Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, I mean, just the two right off the bat, right? They are what? They're Antichrists. They're Antichrists. They're workers of the devil. 
Okay, and so I'm, I'm straight with them. Either you're a worker of the devil or I am because you don't have the same gospel I have. We have a different gospel. We have a different Jesus. We have a different spirit. Either I'm a worker of the devil and I'm leading people, the blind leading the blind, or you are. And that's just straight. I'm telling you, I'm not being mean. It's just a fact. I mean, I had, me and a, a Jehovah Witness pastor stood at the door for a good hour. And I had a great fellowship, if you could say it was fellowship, because it wasn't really fellowship. We didn't have the same Lord. Make sense? But we debated the word. He believed what he believed. I feel bad for him. He's probably going to be one of those in the day who are going to be weeping. You have the weeping and gnashing of teeth because he's believing a what? A lie. So we go on quickly with the validity of the testimony of the church of God. Validity means logically or factually sound. If the word of God isn't true, if we do not have the veracity of God's testimony, then our testimony has no solid footing. Does it make sense? So the authority of our witness. Now this is where we come back to John there in the beginning where he, he's talking about um, his, what he saw. Well, this gets into the inspiration of the, of, the, of the Word of God itself. Okay, Do we believe, really, that the Word of God is what? Inspired. Well, not just true, but inspired by God. Because okay? Paul tells Timothy that it is what? It is God-breathed. Peter says that holy men spoke as they were moved by, by the Holy Spirit. Okay? So do we believe that it is really inspired? Not just, whoo, boy, I feel inspired today. But literally, that, they, that the Holy Spirit, that God spoke through them. Okay? The instruction of the Lord. Okay? The instruction of the Lord that we have, that, that God declared, um, in Ma- God, Christ declared in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, he says, all authority has been what? Given unto me. Therefore, what? Go. So, the fact is that the authority of our witness is based upon the authority of Christ. Ah. It's based upon the testimony of Christ's authority. Do you get this? Do you know that Christ... Take, strip, strip this of the theological conversation, okay? Do you know that Christ or the one who was called to Christ, this man Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem, who people purport to be of God, do you know he really had all authority given to him by God? How do you know that? How can you prove that to me, factually, apart from the Bible? Quit, quit, quit with your cyclical reasoning. I mean, this is how the agnostics and the atheists are going to talk to you. Yes? So apart from the Bible, prove to me that Jesus really had the authority. I mean, you say you have authority, but that authority is based upon the testimony of a man who said he had authority. Do you get it? So again, if, if God's word isn't what? True. Your testimony is what? It's, it's invalid. Yeah, it's, an, it's, it's, it's wrong. And so we believe in the authority of the witness coming from the authority of the witness of Christ. Well, what's the source of our witness? Okay, It's twofold. Look at what John says in his. First of all, there is the educational side of our witness. There is the side where I'm going to read and I'm going to study. Okay, The things I'm going to see and the things that I'm going to what? Hear. Okay? So today, I'm teaching you. That's my role in the body of Christ. I'm a teacher. Okay? And so my job is to teach you the Word of God. Okay? So you are what? Seeing it and you are hearing it. Okay? You're being educated. Now, you can go back and you can check me out, and that's a good thing. That's still part of the what? Educational process. Okay? And so this is all 
um, cut and dry. This is all book. You're studying it. And so you were told in, by Peter that um, to be ready to give an answer for the what? The hope that's within us. Okay, so we're supposed to be ready. We're supposed to be prepared. Paul tells Timothy to study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be shamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So, so there's a part where we're supposed to be studying and being, pre- being prepared to do this. Okay, But the other side of it is our what? It's our experience. I can tell you about the night in the fall of 1984. I think it was November. could have been December. I didn't know I was supposed to write the date down. And I was in my bed. And I can tell you the things that led me to this, but I don't want to. Okay? That's part of my closet. You're not supposed to know. Okay? But God allowed me to realize that I couldn't even live to my own standards. Okay? I had my standards, and I was a good guy, according to me. According to Bob, I was good. According to Bob, I was doing okay. According to Bob, he was going to go to heaven. He was already asked that a few months earlier, and he said, well, if you die, where are you going to go? Oh, I'm going to go to heaven. Why? Oh, because, I, you know, I went to church every Sunday, and I did this, and I did that, and I did this, and I did that, you know. And, so, and then the person said, well, have you ever read the Bible? Yeah, I read the Bible. No, have you ever read the, the entire Bible? Well, okay, no, I've not done that. Would you do that? As a fool, I said, yes. <laughs> so in reading God's word, I realized that I could not live to my own standard. Now, what God did while I was reading was allowed me to go even further into the depths of my sin so that I would recognize what a crud I really am, what a worm I am. And that night while I was laying in my bed, I knew darkness was all over me and my heart burst. If I had a heart attack like I felt I was going to have at that moment, I was going to die and go to hell. And I began to cry my eyes out, and I rolled off my bed. And Marcia can testify to this. It was such that she said to me, hey, are you okay? Can I do something for you? And my response was, do you remember? There's nothing you can do for me. And I get out, and I went into what was our den. We, this is before kids. And I went into my papasan chair. I was quite young at that moment. And so I was able to do that yoga position in the, in the papasan chair kind of thing, you know. And I got into my papasan chair, and I cried my eyes out. And I said, God, if you can save this wicked soul, I'm yours. I didn't know I wasn't supposed to give him a blank check. I didn't know I was supposed to just say, hey, can I, can I have fire insurance? Can I just go to heaven? I said, God, if you can save this wicked soul, I'm yours. Do you know what happened at that moment? All my educational processes came to pass. Not at all. It came in quite contrary to everything I was ever taught in college. In that moment, I had a great peace. You can't fight my testimony. You can't argue with my testimony. Because you weren't there. You don't know what went on in my heart and my mind at that moment. Do you know what? I have been perfect ever since. I make St. Teresa look like a filthy... No, I don't. Have, I mean, <laughs> clearly, I, I have sinned since then. But do you know what? God has given a testimony in my heart that my whole focus has changed. It's now not about me. It's about Him and what I'm doing to Him and what I'm... What I'm what I'm doing to the cross of Christ and I'm stamping on it and it drives me crazy. I didn't care about that before that moment. I only cared about how it was affecting Bob. Do you get it? We're going to talk about that over the next couple weeks. But that's my experience. The word testimony, the word witness, is a legal term. It's to tell what you know to be 
true. So we're in the courtroom, and there's a court case going on. And I call Dr. Moore to the stand. Dr. Moore, and I'm not, see, no, Dr. Moore wasn't there at the time of the crime. But Dr. Moore is a what? A doctor. Yeah. So, so I couldn't call you, Chuck. You're not a doctor. You're not an expert on this. He's got the name doctor. So he's an expert. And so, that's your hero. And so, amen, brother. And so, so I start putting Dr. Moore on the stand, and I ask Dr. Moore about all these physical things. Now, maybe it's pertaining, maybe, maybe this is something pertaining to a child, and so I'm bringing a pediatrician in. If it was something with a, with a more of a crime scene kind of thing, I might bring a splatterologist, and you don't want to know what those guys do, okay? Anyways, but there is a science in that, okay? And they can tell you how things happened based upon the specs and everything else that was good stains. Yeah, kind of fun stuff. Anyways, so, but that's all educational, isn't it? That's cerebral. There's no experiential stuff there unless they got bludgeoned one day and they examined it themselves. What, no, they, they weren't there to do that. So they learned all that stuff in book study. But then I call Phyllis Brown to the stand because Phyllis was there and she saw and she heard. And she shares her what? Experience, which is just as true as his book knowledge. Does it make sense? And so as I study the truth of God's word, I gain book knowledge, but I compound that with multiplied exponentially with my experience, which proves what I have learned in God's word to be profoundly true. Does that make sense? It bears witness within me. The source of our witness is both from the word of God and from the presence of God within us. The motive of our witness, and this is where we end, I promise you. The motive of our witness is huge. Look what he says. These things that we have learned and seen, and we're going to share these things with you, in order that you also may have fellowship with us. What's the purpose of John writing this epistle? That these, well, that they can have fellowship. That's right. That you, if you're not saved, at what? You get saved. If you are saved, you come to know him better. That we have deeper and deeper fellowship. Do you know what the purpose of our witnessing is? It's not to make people clean. It's not to make people more palatable to us. It's that they can fellowship with us. So, if you know some of the um, Ray Comfort videos, and I don't know if it's 180 or whatever, but Stephen, the guy with the, the blue mohawk and the tattoos and the... And the, and the and the, and the piercings all over him and all this kind of stuff. I'll never forget his name, okay? Because, I mean, I learned, God showed me so much about myself with Ray Comfort ministering to this man, who I would say, Ugh. I witnessed to this man. I didn't, but I should. In order that that guy, is, will you do this with me? No, man, we're, we're, that we can have fellowship that guys can hold hands together, and that I can hold hands with Stephen, and I can, I can hug him. Yeah. Yes, that's exactly. That's where I need to get. That's where I need to change the way I think. That's what I want with these guys. That's what I want with this neighborhood, what I want with this community, what I want with the parents. I don't want to make them into homeschoolers. I want to make them into my brothers and my sisters. I want to make them into my, the ones that I, 
I have koinonia with. One for all and all for one. And that I'll die for them even if they don't choose the things I choose. Because I have fellowship with them. We'll talk about that as we go. That you may have fellowship with us. Secondly, that your joy may be what? Full. Do you really care that my joy is full? You know what? If you all cared about my joy being full, and we all cared about your joy being full, and we all cared about their joy being full, guess what would happen? Our joys would be full. But when I focus on my own joy, it doesn't happen very well, does it? I'm pretty miserable because I'm only focusing on me, and I become miserable when nobody else focuses on me. But the point of the gospel, the point of the witness, the point of this whole book, as you're going to see, is about this koinonia. That we're other focused because we have the mind of Christ. Because he came in the flesh and he mirrored it for us. He showed us what it was supposed to like, what it was supposed to look like to be godly. Great is the mystery of godliness. And that's what we're going to see. How phenomenal. When the world looks at us, it's going to be like a what? A mystery. Do you know where the word gospel came from? Godspell. It came from the Bretons, not Britain, but before Britain was Bretons, all the little tribes that were there. And when the Christians went and they began to give the good news, the ungelias, the good news of Jesus Christ, people received it and their lives changed and everybody thought that they were under a spell, a God spell. And so Godspell, and you put that's where the play in the 60s came from, Godspell, okay? And so, and so you contract it together, it becomes the word gospel. People ought to look at us, especially in this day, and say, what's different about them? They're like, like they're under some kind of spell. We are. It's a good spell, isn't it? A Godspell. So in the end, what do you believe about the Bible? Do you truly believe that it is without error? Or is there certain parts of it that you're willing to give up, like the, um, the virgin birth, the incarnation? You pick whatever you want to put in there. How important is being ready to give an answer to you? Are you willing to commit more time to the study of God's truth? If it is the foundation of our testimony, then are you willing to, to know more about it? How do you respond when the Antichrist come knocking on your door? Are you ready to answer them? Are you, ready to t are you prepared to tell them why you believe that Jesus is God? That's the critical. That's the key. Don't let it be shame. They're going to come to you and say, Mormons are going to say, there's a prophet. A prophet has been born. There's a prophet among us. And they're going to talk about Joseph Smith. Ignore it. Don't worry. Go back to what's the truth. The truth is Jesus said, unless you believe I am, I am, you're going to die in your sins. Take them right back to Isaiah 40 to 48. Talk about Yahweh. Yahweh's coming into the earth. Do you believe that the eternal God came to the earth or not? When the Jehovah's Witnesses come, they want to talk about future times prophecy. Okay? They're going to, that, that Jesus is already reigning in the millennium and all this kind of stuff. Ignore it. It's a bunch of junk. Go right to the core. Darkness has come to your door, and God has given you a chance to bring them the light. Is there a need, then, finally, to change the way you think and therefore change the way you act? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Help us to be bold as witnesses. Help us to be able to, to go forth with your message, Lord, and to, to share your truth.
with the world that has a need. God, we thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's turn in our hymnals to...